Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on a rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. I'm Horatio Ruiz, co-host with Stefan. Today we will be talking with Billy Galanko, head of wine at Vint. Vint fractionalizes shares of the most sought-after wines and spirits. Vint launched its first offering in June and sold out in less than one hour. Four months later, we're here to talk with Billy to find out what Vint is all about and what it has planned in the coming months. Billy, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Billy, you know, when I first heard about Vint, I was like, there's no way that, you know, we're going to be fractionalizing, you know, wines and champagne and even whiskey, uh, which we're going to get into. Could you tell me a little bit about, you know, how you got involved with the company and what it means to be the head of wine there? Yeah. When I heard about the concept, I was I was excited as well. But yeah, so we basically got in touch. It was all the way back in March. It feels like a long time ago. I guess it's only been a little over nine months. But I was on a freelance platform called Upwork. And uh, I had just passed my WSET 3 exam, which is a wine education exam, kind of like the quartermaster sommeliers. So basically, I was on Upwork and looking to do more wine writing. And Nick reached out to me to write some articles for Vint. And we sat down. He started, you know, giving me the spiel about what Vint was all about, you know, kind of how they're going to fractionalize shares, potentially even looking down the line to, you know, like you were saying, selling whiskey, even potentially fractionalizing vineyards way down the line. I thought that was really interesting. And rather than just, you know, asking more questions to try to write for them, I actually started asking questions from more an investor point of view. So I actually ended up investing in the company before I even worked for them, just because I thought the idea was so interesting. And then from that day forward, I basically started working on a kind of a a pro bono basis for the next uh, two months. And then, you know, after the first collection sold out uh, end of May and um, everything started really going, they asked me to come on full time. And I was the first uh, full time employee of the company outside of the founders. Wow. So, you know, when I when I see the title head of wine. To me, I feel like that's a huge responsibility for a company that's fractionalizing wine, you know, or that's named Vint and that's kind of what they do. Um, What does that mean? Like, I mean, are you out there sourcing the wines? Are you making recommendations on what to acquire and fractionalize? Are you kind of the point person that uh, with other vineyards or or other experts in the field that, you know, hey, maybe you might want to take a look at at these wines. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I was lucky. Nick and Patrick, our founders, did a good job of putting together a, a wine investment committee before I joined. So we have two masters of wine, Adam LaPierre and Amy Christine. And then we also have a couple merchant partners. Kevin Sitters is based here in the US. Um, He runs VinConnect. And we have another partner named Miles Davis, who um, works for wine owners in the UK. So we kind of have this this network of people who've been dealing in these fine wines for decades. And then myself, uh, I'm a certified sommelier, WSET diploma student. And then I've been researching wine and very deep in the space for for years now. So between myself, I kind of start the baseline of what we're what we're going for in any collection I put together, you know, based on market research and 
what I'm seeing uh, in terms of availability in the market. I put together a couple themes and we run them past our board, or I guess you would say the wine investment committee. We kind of get their feedback, uh, you know, a little bit of their past experience, what they're seeing in the market and any sourcing advice that they might have for these wines. And then from there, we narrow down which collections we're going to choose. And we, we basically have a, a list of anywhere from three to six potential collections that we bring to our merchant partners. And from there, we see where we can get the best value, uh, the best bang for our buck and in order to pass that down to our investors. So we're really looking for the, the highest caliber quality of wine within the collections that we choose, whether that be producer vintage or um, basically quality like original wooden case is something we look for in wines. And then we work with our partners to see, you know, what's available, what quantities, and at what price can we acquire these. What does that mean, an original wooden case? It's basically, um, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever seen it, but it's just like a, a wooden box where that with different slots for the, the different wines. So if it's a six-pack, it'll be kind of this long rectangle where six bottles are laid down inside. But typically what this means is it came directly from the chateau or whatever the producer is. So it's almost a sign of like the utmost provenance, you know, typically wines, once they're in these boxes, aren't resold in just like a, a piece. They're either taken out and sold, you know, a couple at a time or they're sold as the full case. So it's, it's really a provenance symbol. Yeah, that's cool. It's almost like uh, the authenticity is there, right? And, and I don't know how to compare it to something else, but like a letter of authenticity, you know, it, it's like, you know where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, a, a lateral, but it, it basically pictures something that if it came in and you take it out and you put it back in, it, would, it wouldn't be the same uh, and you'd be able to tell. So I noticed you know, your first three offerings that you guys had, you guys had um, three wine collections and then you kind of took a little pivot and you went to champagne. And then a couple of offerings later, you went into, into whiskey or scotch. What made that pivot? I mean, was that always part of the plan for Vin to kind of not just be a wine company, but to then kind of explore other spirits? Yeah. So I, I'll say that in our point of view, sparkling wine and champagne is part of that is, is, is still, you know, wine. Um, so that wasn't as big of a, a shift going from still to sparkling and maybe someday we'll have a, a fortified wine or dessert wine collection as well. But moving over to whiskey was always part of the plan. It, it's something that number one, investors of wine tend to overlap often with investors of whiskey. Also, it's it's a really interesting space in that the ways that you can invest are, are very similar to wine, but they're less available to most people. So while wine investment is very difficult to get into for most normal people, whiskey investment's even more difficult. And the numbers behind like values and, and quantities produced are even more opaque. So for the average investor, it takes a lot of digging and you need to know the right people. So for us, it was always, you know, kind of part of our mission to democratize wine and spirits investment is really kind of pulling back the curtain and giving people the opportunity to invest in either really rare and expensive you know, single bottles or groups of bottles of whiskey or even casks of whiskey. You know, I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought that wine would have had a bigger barrier to being a sort of investment, you know, and that whiskey was kind of more of a attainable, I guess, maybe, or more something that uh, people can, I don't know if this is the right word, but relatable. You know, whiskey is kind of like this drink that you can pretty much pick up anywhere, you know, and and, and, and same with wine, but it's just, I, I feel like whiskey is kind of that common man's drink, right? What are the barriers to that that's kind of more so than you would find in wine? Yeah, I'd say there's a number of things. The first piece would probably be just transparency. The top producers of wine each year, you're going to have, they're going to clearly put on their label, like this is this vintage, it's going to come out at a certain period of time. So if I harvest my grapes, say 
September of 2017. Um, if it sits in barrel for 18 months, you're going to get the wine out in 2019, you know, spring. So basically, there, there's a lot of clarity there. And then also the, the routes through which they sell, there's these negotiant routes, or it goes straight to um, the secondary market, which is pretty clear. For whiskey, you know, those whiskeys sit in barrel for so long. And then when they are bottled in the most expensive ones, sometimes they sit in barrel for 20, 30 years. Um, and they're bottled in small runs. Sometimes it's as small as a single cask. Sometimes it's a few casks. And all the while, there's a master blender putting together this, this special mix of, if it's a couple casks, like really to a certain flavor. So they're going to come out with very few bottles. It's going to be very inconsistent in terms of the release. You know, every year you're going to find like a 12-year and a you know 18-year release by the big producers. But to get these special bottles and these single vintage, quote-unquote vintage, like this whiskeys that were basically distilled in a single year. It's it's very hard to come across these and knowing when they're released and the avenues through which they're released is very difficult. There's not this standard channel of these wines going or these whiskeys going to market on a regular basis like there is for wine. Wow, that, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, we were talking about the the whiskey and the, the, the wine. I kind of got ahead of myself. What are your thoughts on Talk about democratizing it and making it more accessible, you know, investing in, in fine wines and, and spirits. What are your thoughts on on where wine and, and whiskey fit into this space? I mean, is it something that you see a big future of? You feel like that, that there's not enough of um, as you guys are kind of progressing with, with, with in your journey here? Yeah, no, the uh, the alternative investment space in general is, is very interesting. One of my majors undergrad in college was actually art history. So I've I've invested in some art even from a young, young age. I kind of took my some of my little savings and bought a, bought a piece of art not too long out of college. But from there, I've kind of personally dabbled in um, crypto investment too. And it's been really exciting to see is, you know, over the past few years in particular, there's not only been more interest around the alternative investment space in general, but a lot of people making certain different types of alternative investments easier. So Masterworks is doing it for people for fine art. You're seeing people like Fundrise do it for houses. You're seeing Acre Trader do it for farmland. So what we kind of saw in this space is there is not only great value to be found in alternative investments, but you're also finding more and more people with an appetite or a hunger to kind of get in the space. And most of these um, alternative assets are very high barrier to entry, which is why you're seeing more of these Reg A Plus platforms doing it for for farmland or art. And we were very surprised to be able to find the space that wasn't that's as lucrative as wine investment and whiskey investment and not find people already you know fractionalizing the actual assets so that was the opportunity that kind of inspired it all but it was brought on by this larger wave of alternative investment interest so i i guess you know for the audience that's listening is why and sometimes it doesn't have to be one or the other it could be both but why choose wine and whiskey specifically, you know, is it something you saw in the data? Is it something that you've, you've known that the, the returns are there um, when they're, like you mentioned, there's so many other, uh, you know, opportunities there for, for investors. Yeah. I, I would say our, our founder, Nick started this process a couple of years ago. So when he was getting going, there was a few less opportunities, but when he was, he worked at an investment firm and was studying these different types of assets and really saw that not only was they're an opportunity for great value, you know, over time between the supply and demand for wine. It's what's really interesting is, you know, there's a single vintage, there's a finite supply of that wine. So that was one thing. The other part was, you know, 
different producers driving different values in different geographies. So what's interesting is a wine can cost X in Europe. We could sell it in Asia for X amount is or Y amount. And then you can potentially find an arbitrage just selling between different markets, which you don't typically find with other assets. It's not like you're going to be able to sell some farmland you know, overseas and basically get more value for it, you're still just selling that share. So it's something that's transportable, but also finite and has a great supply and demand ratio because, you know, over time people drink the wines. So that's going to go down. There's only a finite supply and it's something that can traverse the world and kind of transcends culture as well. So there's a few unique factors that wine and whiskey possess that some of these alternatives, others don't. You mentioned Asia. Is that part of like the the plan when you're, when you're off about considering what to offer kind of like what kind of, uh, you know, wine and, and, and whiskey is, is in demand in different parts. Um, so you're not necessarily, you know, just thinking about the, the best wine necessarily, but something that's going to, for whatever reason, you know, is, is in the highest, has shown a, a higher demand in, in recent years. Yeah, we don't really take specific geographies into account, I guess, per se, in, in the selection of the wines. There are certain wines, like in recent years, especially in the late 2000s, the aughts, as you would say, or the early 2010s, you know, Bordeaux is really taking off in Asia, but it, it's more you're, you're looking at macro market trends. And then something that you do have to take into account when selling in other markets is, is provenance and quality of the bottles and the labels. So that's one reason we keep our wine in London rather than bring it over to the US and holding it here. A majority of our wines kept in London. So one, we could either resell it in Europe or Asia as soon as you bring it to the US, the value of those wines tends to go down. It's just a, a, a transportation and you know potential damage to the wine that could happen in transit. And then the other piece is the label quality and just any opportunity to scuff the label or, or the neck or the bottle with the foil on top. There are investors, especially in Asia, who will really not accept any defects. And so the, the more pristine the bottles can be, the better and the better resale value you'll have. So that's one way we take Asia into account, but it's it's not in the selection of the wines per se themselves, because there is a there is a top tier that is valued kind of the world over. So I'm kind of a baseball junkie. So it's almost like like grading a baseball card, huh? It's like almost like the the presentation of the bottle means a ton you know it, it could it could depreciate the value of the wine even though the wine could taste just as well as you know in a poorly presenting bottle as a as one that's pristine yeah so for investment purposes yeah exactly and it's actually funny you say that because we were we were just discussing potentially grading bottles as, as they do for baseball cards um it's interesting there's no single central location where they grade wines right now kind of like they do for for certain types of cards. So it's, it's an interesting concept. You're talking about like actually grading the bottles? Potentially. Okay. I didn't think that that was even possible, but yeah, I mean, you could do that. I mean, they're doing it with video games, right? And that's blowing up. You know, they've done it with trading cards for decades now. So yeah, why not bottles? Interesting also, like what kind of damage can be done transporting uh, wine or, or does whiskey fall into that? Like where if you transport it, it could get damaged by, I guess, the movement or something? Whiskey is a little more impervious to damage. You know, wine's li- like a living, I don't want to call it an organism, but it's its living in the bottle. So there's a, a number of things that could actually go wrong with wines. I would say it's on a very superficial level. Like I was saying that any labels can get scuffed or torn or the, the tops, the foil can get torn. But m- more importantly, uh, if the wine is not kept you know, at the, at the right angle, say the cork dries out and some evaporation occurs, you'll see some ullage, which basically means the wine's, you know, kind of evaporating and going down. 
and the bottle. So if you stood it upright, you'll see the wine lower in the neck. So fill level is something that's really important whenever you're assessing the quality of an old wine. And then last but not least, it's very important is, is heat. Wine is very temperamental, especially old wine, to temperature shifts, large swings in temperature, and especially warm temperatures. So if, say, a container, the, the best wines are shipped in refrigerated containers, but if one, for whatever reason, has, has a fault or something goes wrong, um, or they're kept in port or somebody leaves a door open, that wine could be, could be damaged. And heat's probably the hardest to tell. You know, there are a few signs, you know, if, if it gets really hot, you know, sometimes the corks get pushed out a little bit or something. But um, I would really say fill level and heat are what would impact the actual flavor of the wine the most. And then and the aesthetics are the other parts that could be potentially damaged as well. I know you recently you had a, an offering for, let me take a look here, the Bordeaux Futures and kind of like the, the newest class of, of wines that came from Bordeaux. How do you go about uh, determining when the right time is to kind of uh, get your return on investment for for something like that, uh, for any kind of bo- uh, bottle of wine? Is it, do you decide, okay, after 10 years, 15 years, or does it just really depend on the wine? And I know it's a bit of a silly question, but in my mind, if if you have this high quality wine, like some of the best in the world, and you just keep it in the bottle for say 50 years, right? Can the wine go bad if you, even if it's kept in perfect condition? Yes, I'll, I'll take your first part of your question First, the the futures is an interesting offering because these wines aren't even ready to be bottled yet. So basically what we're doing is buying wines that the chateau are still aging in barrel that are still developing and ahead of ahead of bottle readiness, really. So when we're looking at like vintage cello wine, uh we're we're really just looking at market trends, market value, and trying to get the best returns that we can for our investors. So his, historically, you know, some of these things like uh, on Primor, historically, earlier in time, basically, you would see some sort of bump when those wines were bottled and available on the secondary market, um, in theory. Over the years, sometimes on Primor pricing has gotten really high, and there isn't as much difference between the price of bottle at, uh, at on Primor and the price of bottle at secondary sale initially. Um, so for that collection in particular, we had to do a really good job of sourcing and trying to find, discover where, where value lies um, with the 2020 wines. And, and it was a really good year wine wise. So it was easy to kind of pick some good ones. But um, to your other question of do wines go bad? Yes, that is unfortunately something that happens with wines, even the best wines. So one reason Bordeaux is so highly valued is these wines can mature and develop beautifully for 40, 50 plus years. And that means, you know, it's due to some tannin and acid in the wine that basically allows it to continue to kind of mature and soften over the years. But if if a cork is bad or, um, you know, something else happens, maybe they're accidentally exposed to heat. But I guess to your point, if it's in best conditions possible, it, it is still possible that a bottle could be um, a little off. Um, you'll see that especially in Burgundy. Um, some some old Burgundies can be can be temperamental. But a, a lot of collectors tend to, that's why they tend to buy packs. You don't see as many of the best wines in the world sold as a single. You see them tend to be sold more, um, or or the, not the very best. If we're talking like Domaine de la Romanicanti, which we'll get to here, which some of the wines that we're selling, um, those tend to be in singles. But you'll see a lot of wines sold as three and six packs just in case, uh, you know, a cork is faulty or something. Um, so you still have the rest of the wines in the collection to drink. So hypothetically speaking, you can have like this 50-year-old wine that's ready to drink and really expensive, but then it, it could be a dud, you know, and so somebody might have spent God knows how much money, right, on, on this bottle of wine. But just because maybe a little defect here and there, it, it, it's bad. 
uh, yeah, it, it's wild. But there, there's a thing called cork taint, which is like a like a bacteria that lives on the bottom of corks that uh, used to be a lot more prominent. Um, now sanitation has kind of come a long way and uh, almost eliminated it from a lot of corks. But uh, like that is something that even the most experienced wine drinkers, you know, or collectors know that that's that's a potential out there. So that that's one of the many things that could potentially go wrong. But people don't not purchase wines out of fear that it's not going to be good. If you're collecting at this level to consume, you're aware of the the risks. And that's what makes the best bottles so great because you're not 100% sure every time what happens. That's great. Uh, there's a little bit of risk involved, uh, even, even with something that, that, that high. You mentioned previously about getting also into uh, vineyard investments. Could you talk a little more about that? I mean, uh, and where you might be looking at? Uh, right now, this is it's still like it's very much far down the line. The idea there would just be exploring something where we could own a piece of vineyard um, and say, have work with a company or a producer to to manage it and potentially either just farm the fruit and sell that off for sale or potentially bottle wine with the producer and then allow investors to to buy shares of that acre per se. So say say at a certain acre, you could buy in at a certain price. And each year that, you know, whatever we get for, say, the fruit would be a dividend. This is just an idea we're kind of, you know, it's not anytime soon and not anytime in the near future, but it's just something that can happen. And it's it's part of the many layers of the wine industry that are appealing to us. And we're, we're really interested in exploring all of them and helping our investors, you know, gain access to many different asset classes through the lens of wine and spirits that they might not have had access to. You know, talking about the investors, I know I've, I've spoken to Eric that's up at Vint, and uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of the setup right now What you guys have, you know, you have your offering, you know, the, the investors put in buy their shares. And at the moment, right, you basically have that, that however much you put into the offering, you have it locked up for three to five years, let's say, right? Because that's kind of how long it'll be until maybe Vint decides to look for its returns. How do you feel about that model, you know, where, where investors are kind of putting in their money and, and they're holding as opposed to maybe some other fractional companies where they also have a, a secondary market where they can trade shares, their shares that they buy? Do you see any pros and cons maybe developing that in Vint or, or are you guys kind of working with that model where, hey, you know, give us the money for the offering. You know, we know that this, this stuff is high quality. It's going to appreciate. And when the time is right, we'll sell it and, and be able to give you a good return. I, I know it's a bit of a two-pronged question, but... Do you see the secondary market popping up for you guys, or are you happy with the model that you have now? Uh, yeah, so I can answer both of those. It, it's interesting. You actually come across um, investors. I was actually talking to one on the customer support chat yesterday that was adamant that he only wanted to invest if they could hold the wine for you know more than three years. So I was like, well, of course, we can help you with that. But um, yes, we are going to be developing secondary trading. Um, it's on the roadmap. We'll see based on development, but hopefully H1 of next year. So in the first six months, you know, don't hold us to that. You know, development can always hit, hit snags, but we're, we're working on the legalities and everything of getting it up and running. We have a broker-dealer partnership, so the road's looking good there. And we, we definitely want to have our consumers to, or give the consumers, or our investors, the opportunity to liquidate if they would like to. Um, we always encourage, you know, to hold on the wines because we're basically unlike you know other i i don't know any other exactly i don't want to name any names or any other platforms but basically like our model will be 
to sell when the market is best for those wines to get the best returns or, you know, historically returns if there are returns. So we're not going to be forced to sell at any one time um, if we don't want to, I guess, is what we're getting at. You know, we, we, we certainly cannot guarantee any any form of return, but there are some platforms where if you want to call on your money right now, they're going to have to figure out what to do with, you know, whether it be wine or any of the other investments you may have, uh, where our plan is always for each collection to, you know, try to identify the proper time to sell the wines and do the best we can on that side. Yeah. I know that one of the issues with some of the, you know, platforms at times is, uh, you know, how illiquid even the secondary uh, trading could be and, and how maybe one trade or two could kind of, you know, superficially kind of, you know, lower or raise the value of an asset. Have you guys explored those those pros and cons uh, and th- that feedback that you're getting like, from that investor says, you know, I want you to hold my money for three years. Where do you take that? Where's that balance that you strike? How are you able to convey that to the investors, whether they want it or not? We're actually really excited about this opportunity because a lot of these different platforms, you might see the illiquidity comes from the the singular asset that they're holding being so valuable or you know kind of being niche and in terms of demand the platform that we'll build is a little different because there are some wine platforms now where people try to get trading data but one bottle of like very expensive wine you know may be sold only once every couple years um so their data points are so small whereas we're going to have this interesting snapshot of different regions different vintages and different you know producers all being bought and sold just in these individual shares so with our low price point, we could see investors, you know, hold a majority of their shares and maybe just reallocate. Maybe they want more, you know, Burgundy rather than more Piemonte, or they want more American wines rather than European. We're going to be able to see this trading interest in value on like kind of a micro scale. So it's going to allow people to do it without having to sell individual bottles and actually find buyers the market over, kind of how the market currently is. So we're actually hoping to become a data source of our own down the line based on what we see and the trading information that we can garner uh, from our secondary market. It's something we're pretty excited about. That's pretty cool. Um, an- another development you talked about, and you had mentioned this was your involvement in dabbling in cryptocurrency and, and also that comes along with the NFTs. We talked a little bit before uh, the podcast about uh, a potential NFT with Vint uh, and, and, and what that might look like. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So... Again, not not quite as early days as, as say something like a vineyard, but uh, we're we're just exploring these opportunities now. There, there's a number of people who are trying to do NFTs backed by physical goods, and and we've been exploring um, talking to a couple producer partners about how we could offer you know NFTs backed by wine experiences and and, and other opportunities. So w- what's really interesting is it's kind of like what we're doing with our shares in the first place is, you know, the wines stored in London, you're buying a share of it that gives you the right to it. It's basically the same thing that an NFT would be doing in a sense. Um, if you directly linked it to a singular bottle, which is one way you could do things. The only issue with that is you would need to somehow link the, the NFT directly to the bottle and make sure that if it's open or ever, you know, damaged or something or sold that that NFT, you know, changes the proper hands. Um, the other way to do it is uh, something like, I don't know if you've seen Gary V's uh, V Friends, to give people kind of rights to something over a period of time. So maybe maybe backed by wine, if you own this NFT, you get X amount of wine per year from certain producer or producers. 
Um, just like with Gary's V friends, they allow people to you know, go to VCon for the next three years. So we've been exploring a couple models. Can't give you know any any exact specifics right now because we're still uh, you know working on it. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's an interesting space, and I think it's definitely a technology that's going to be used more and more in the wine kind of provenance space in the coming years. Um, then we just want to make sure that we're we're staying up on on everything. When I hear you talk about Gary V and you're talking about like maybe utility, right? Mm-hmm. So when you own, if you own an event NFT, you get rights to maybe not to that wine that you purchase, right? That, you know, that super expensive bottle of wine or whiskey, but you kind of can get the lower product of that, you know, the lower end product of that, or maybe you get a, 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 some, a wine that's made from a, a neighboring vineyard, that kind of thing. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, you know, when you're exploring utility, right? NFTs and, and kind of giving you access to different things besides just owning a share of a, of a bottle of wine, you know, the, the, the opportunities are, are not limitless, but there's a ton, especially when you're talking about getting together and, and drinking a good bottle of wine. Yeah, it's funny you actually say that. Um, we're actually coming out with, with a line of consumer boxes where at least uh, we have a pilot coming up that hasn't been officially announced yet, but maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will be that basically we're going to start exploring testing so basically corresponding companion boxes to some of our collections. So say we have a collection of wines that are, you know, you're never going to drink them because we, we keep them in a certain place. And with the intention is never to have our, our investors be able to acquire the bottles, but we are able to work with our producer partners to acquire bottles that either from the same vineyard or right next door um, that can correspond or at least the same region. So we'll have a, a Napa collection coming out you know, in the near future. And then we're going to have a corresponding box of a pilot of, of 12 uh, boxes of three Napa producers that we've, we've sourced to kind of go along with that box to kind of bring it a more tangible experience. And to, to your point, kind of bring, bring it, I guess, a little more experiential in terms of a utility. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I was getting at is one, it could be, you could literally just have it be a tracking of physical one-to-one item, or we were actually talking about not even having that expensive bottle in the mix. Like maybe all the value is just purely utility and it's just giving you a right to certain wines, access to certain locations and the, the ability to do certain things rather than purely backed by an asset or maybe a combination of the two. So to your point, it is kind of endless and that's where we're starting to, we're, we're working on honing down and kind of hewning down what we might want to go with because there's so many ways we could take you know this type of space. Yeah, I mean, the, the NFT space is so wide open right now. And uh, I think artists, you know, right now, or even creators are, are realizing, you know, it's not just enough to have a nice, cool, you know, picture of something of, you know, some of a lion or of a koala or whatever, but uh, that, that there, there is, you know, value behind not, you know, and not that there's not value in art and the, in the, in the NFTs, but that there's something tangible. Right. And, and I think that that's kind of the, the, the next phase of, the, of this NFT. Agreed. And I think there's also the opportunity to kind of merge the space too. you know, working closer with more some of these NFT producers already. So to your point, maybe you can put your koala on your own wine and then, uh, you know, you can have your special wine and that there's kind of like a a dual value there. So we've been exploring all angles of this and we'll probably be testing a number of these things over the, the next year or so. Yeah. So I wanted to get right now, you guys, you guys had an offering, let me see, uh, about two weeks ago, right? The DRC collection. And I, I want to get into that. Before I do that, I, I actually wanted to ask you, since you're the head of wine, do you have a, a favorite uh, offering that you've had so far? Have, 
which one, you know, for whatever reason, which one do you just are, are like, wow, we were actually able to offer this and, and, and fractionalize it and now people own a part of this? Uh, you're, you're asking me to kind of choose my favorite child here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so DRC did just launch last week. I would say that's probably like the easiest one for people to kind of go to. It's one of the most famous wines in the world. But if, if I had to kind of break off, I think there, and this is nothing to do with from an investment point of view. It's just my personal favorite as a, as a wine nerd. I think uh, the Spanish collection would have to be my, my personal kind of interesting favorite up until last year, the first Wine, I guess I really started investing with, and I always had found amazingly fascinating was Vega Sicilia out of Spain. Um, to me, it was, you know, it was always considered one of the, the top wines in the world. And it's not like affordable, but compared to some of the other wines, like the, the Romani DRC that we're kind of selling right now, it is affordable. And so that, that wine was always really interesting to me. And then we came across, or I, I learned and read more over the years about Pingus too, which is a another high quality Ribera del Duero producer um, that we also featured in our Spanish collection. So to be able to kind of feature something that I've always loved um, in Vegas, Sicilia and a, a wine that was probably the first investment grade wine that I tasted and to be able to combine that with another legend that's really hard to find and typically hard to source like Pingus for, for the good vintages. It was, that was probably would just be for my wine nerd side, my favorite. So the, the Vegas Sicilia was the first kind of premier bottle of wine that you ever tasted. Uh, like consciously, you know, like there's difference between tasting wine and passing or having a sip at a wine tasting. This was when I I had left New York after becoming a certified psalm to go work at a winery in Australia. Uh, just basically quit my job and went to go work at Vintage. And I had a friend from college who was a winemaker down there. And we were at his house in Adelaide. And he basically said, go, you can open my wine fridges. He'd been collecting for a few years and just pick out any bottle I wanted. And so I picked out a Vegas Sicilia. It was a, a Valbuena, not a Unico, which Unicos were in our collection. But uh, I was very surprised he let me open it. And turns out he just wanted to, an excuse to open any of his nice bottles. So we had that wine and, and it was it was a blast. And it was the first one that I read about in my studies and had come across. And, you know, it was just more the confluence of all of that in that experience that really made it one of my favorites and the most memorable in terms of first collectible wines I've tasted. That's what it's all about, right? Like, like when you get like this this feeling of nostalgia, you know, and it's just you can't beat that. Mm-hmm. You know, transitioning now. Last week you offered up the the DRC collection, and you know it's it's labeled here on the website as the most sought after wines in the world. And you guys had a write up on it, kind of uh, exploring the vineyard and how you know kind of how it's made, how it's how it's bottled. Could you talk, give a little bit about what makes this collection that's uh, still available? What makes it so special? Yeah, it's. Still available at the time of this recording. So is that November second, nine fifteen Eastern time? Uh, yeah. So what what makes it so impressive and I guess sought after will be it, there's multiple fold. Um, first thing is just kind of understanding the difference between Burgundy and Bordeaux in general. Uh, the top wines in Bordeaux are based on a classification system from 1855 that classified producers. So certain chateau could basically be classified on their own. So if, if uh, what's a good example, Margot, Chateau Margot expanded its vineyards, you know, 3X, they could still call all of that wine within there Chateau Margot and still call it, you know, first growth. Whereas in Burgundy, the uh, basically the vineyards are what's classified, not the producers. 
So it goes every all the way up from General Burgundy, it's called like Bourgogne, and it goes up through Village, Premier Crew levels, or Premier Crew levels, and Grand Crew. It's the very top tier. So understanding that kind of framework first is, I guess, a good basis to start. And then once you get up, so there's there's less than 2% of all of Burgundy is Grand Cru. And all of the wines that Domaine de la Romanicanti makes are from Grand Cru vineyards. So that alone is very impressive. The two top wines that DRC makes are grown in Grand Cru vineyards that are monopoles, which means basically not only is the vineyard itself Grand Cru, but it's also owned by a single person and it's basically an appellation unto itself. So the monopole, it's like a mini appellation unto itself, but it's its all Grand Cru and it's owned by one person. So the Domain de la Romani Conti owns a vineyard just named Romani Conti. And the people will just refer to as Romani Conti, Romani Conti. But basically that is a monopole that they own all on their own. And it produces you know, arguably what some people say is the best Burgundy in the world, which, you know, if people play place Burgundy at the very top of the scale, then they'll say that's the best wine in the world. You know, it, that's up for debate, but it's really interesting. So they have Romani Conti as its own monopole, and they also have Latash as its own monopole, um, which is really interesting to me. Um, it's kind of, you know, its own vineyard, singularly owned, and it's kind of like an appellation unto itself. Um, and then they also make wines from a bunch of other Grand Cru's in the area. So I guess that's that's the very first step. When you say they're singularly owned, I mean that you're you're talking about like it's kind of uh, independently owned, so it's not so uh, I guess corporate or, or or there's there's it's been passed down through history, you know, to where it's a part, been part of a family for for generations. Is, is what what's the the with it being you know singularly owned? Great question. It all kind of goes back to the French Revolution. Um, after that period of time and after Napoleon came to power, basically after someone died, they basically had to divide up their property equally amongst their, their children. Uh, there was basically a pushback against the church and a pushback against nobility. So there was a bunch of these vineyards that started being divided and divided like a ton over the years as people, you know, generations passed. So it's getting down to the point where in Burgundy, say like a, a vineyard We'll pick like Jevry Chambertin is a, a well-known Grand Cru vineyard. Um, multiple people own plots in Jevry Chambertin. They might own a row of vines. They might own, you know, a, a larger parcel. But basically, uh, most of the top vineyards in Burgundy are basically owned by multiple people. And there are multiple people either owning as small as, like I was saying, a row. Some people can own a majority. But it, it's really interesting to find a single a vineyard, especially a Grand Cru site, only owned by one person just due to these heritage laws and chopping up of the vineyards over the years. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's super. Maybe they bought them out. Maybe they bought the other people out or who knows, right? But but like you said, if, if it's been going back to the days of Napoleon over time, I mean, you would imagine that everyone's left with just a, a, a small parcel or something, not an, a, not an entire vineyard. Yeah, no, like and especially uh, Romani Conti, the vineyard itself is very special because it was it was owned by the Prince of Conti, and he actually, the wines were so good, he refused to share them with anyone. He just made them for himself, and even when he had parties, he wouldn't let anybody else drink it, <laughs> um, which is interesting. And then somehow during the revolution and breaking up over the church time, it was able to stay as, as a singular parcel. So Romani Conti in particular was able to be basically owned in late 1800s. It was a singular person had owned it all still. And then in 1942... 
two families decided to make it a, I can't remember what the French term is, but basically it's like a civil agreement of like a partnership of ownership. So that way it's not subject to the heritage breaking up laws. So there's, there's two families who've kind of passed um, duties on overseeing it down the lines. But since it is like a civil agreement, they're not um, legally obligated to chop it up. So that's, that's something that's really important. And that will maintain the integrity of this vineyard, you know, over time. And and I will say that consistent ownership, the chief winemaker uh, has been there since uh, a long time. Basically, his father owned it. And then he has been on, I think he was in charge since the early 1950s. Uh, and then the person actually overseeing the, the cellar itself, you know, just kind of the day-to-day maintenance of the, the bottles, making sure ferments and everything are going. Um, he's been there since 1985. And his father was the, the chef de cave, as it's called in French for the 45 years prior. So there's just been this amazing consistency with this amazing terroir over the years. And and then to put like, a, I guess, icing on the cake, they transitioned to organic farming in the mid 1980s and biodynamic farming in 2007, 2008, which is basically means very low intervention, very natural uh, viticulture and winemaking. So it's basically replenishing the soils and, and keeping a very healthy biome so it's it's kind of basically making the most out of their amazing terroir. Yeah, that's that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, just just the history, the provenance that we talked about before. I mean, it seems like this this has it all. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I mean, as of as of today, November second, you know, this was the most your most expensive collection yet that you guys have offered. Eight bottles, and there are still 111 shares left. Each one just twenty five dollars each. So yeah, that's a that's that's an impressive that's an impressive uh, story. You know, behind that that, that wine. Yeah, no, the other the other key part, I guess, we can get at is uh, Domaine de la Romanicanti owns plots or at least manages, leases different parcels and Grand Cru vineyards in multiple Grand Cru vineyards. But um, even so, each year they only produce a little over 2,000 cases of wine total. And then so three of the wines that we're selling is from a year where they produced from Romanicanti. They only produced 386 total cases of this wine like that whole year. Wow. So if you multiply that by 12, you know, that, that's very few bottles. So that's why it's really interesting to, that's why they're in such high demand and they can command such high prices for individual bottles. Cause you know, they're, they're just so few of them and they're so high quality and people actually, you know, drink these around the world. So it's, it's really, it's really exciting to be able to sell a few of these and get our hands on them. And, and that's just, again, it, all you got to do is hold on to them for a couple of years, right? Because of that demand and the scarcity over time. You just, you know, I know you don't guarantee anything, but it's it's kind of it makes sense, right? This this stuff, the supply dwindles, and it's still this ama- amazing wine. The value is only going to go up, right? Well, historically, historically, that's the trend it's taken. Yeah, to your point, we can't guarantee anything, but uh, we we like like our chances there. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what what's next uh, for Vint? Uh, can you talk about any future offerings? Anything that might be different, or you guys, uh, you know, gonna gonna Basically, go you know looking for more wine collections, looking for more uh, maybe possibly whiskey. Yeah, no, we have um a, a bunch of exciting things coming up. Like I mentioned earlier, we have a, a twenty eighteen Napa collection uh, coming up that's kind of headlined by more Screaming Eagle. We basically had Screaming Eagle as our one of our first wines that we ever sold. It was in our first collection, uh, and we've had people asking you know for the opportunity to invest in more. So we actually have the Screaming Eagle Rouge, or you know, it's just the traditional red Screaming Eagle cab. And then we also have the Blanc, the, the Sauvignon Blanc Screaming Eagle, which we're really excited about, along with a bunch of other really high caliber 
2018 Napa's. After that, we have a collection of Rhone wines um, featuring mainly wines wines from the Northern Rhone. Uh, We have a bunch of what's um, called Gigal's Lala's. Uh, It's basically wines from Cote Roti made by Gigal from different, I guess, special vineyards throughout the area. So that's really exciting. A little bit of um, Hermitage and some other really high caliber Northern Rhone wines mixed in there. Following that, we have a Piemonte Northern Italian collection uh, featuring some of the best Barolos and Barbarescos in the world. And then wrapping up this next batch, we have a, a Japanese whiskey collection, which is actually a collection of 36 bottles that all have unique art. And from what we have seen, and not really to our knowledge, does anybody else have all of the bottles together? I'm sure some private collections are out there, but on the market, there are no complete collections of these whiskeys. So we were really excited to work with one of our merchant partners to kind of bring this together over a period of time. And uh, we're excited to offer that to to our investors as well. So this is Japanese whiskey, which is in itself awesome. And then you're saying that these 36 bottles each have like a, a unique uh, piece of art to them? Yeah, as a collection, they kind of make this 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 whole I don't know uh, painting, or they tell a story or something, you know? Yeah, it's it's the thirty six views of Mount Fuji. I'm pretty sure is the the title of the whole collection. So yeah, each one kind of has has a different angle and and represents the mountain and then the artist that created that in a different way. So yes, even even after the whiskey is emptied from these bottles, still, you know, I, I assume somebody will still keep them around and there'll still be enough. Um, interest in in potential value in there uh in the bottles themselves that's awesome yeah and, and we we talked about previously how important the, the the bottles can be you know and i know that this might be like a silly question so we have wine champagne whiskey and we, we talked a little bit about dessert wines is there is there another drink uh, another you know uh you know fine spirit that that might be possible a future offering that we're not even thinking of yeah i mean the, the world of spirits is interesting in and of itself so, you know, there's people who, you know, highly value cognac. There's Calvados, which is like a apple spirit, a spirit made from basically distilled apple cider. So there's definitely, you know, there's bourbon, of course, as well, you know, other whiskeys. So there, there could potentially be a range of spirits. Um, there's definitely in the world of fortified wines and dessert wines. And when I say dessert wines, it's just they're, they're still wines with higher you know, sugar content, I guess you would say, but like Sauterne is an example, like Ikem is a, a famous producer. And um, those wines, what's interesting about those and the fortifieds is they age for forever, basically. Um, so like a potential collection there could be wines dating all the way back to the 1800s of some of those sweeter fortified wines. Um, so that that's, that's something that's really interesting. And we'll certainly be exploring the different avenues over time. And, you know, we're not by any means just stuck on stuck on regular whiskey if we were to explore different spirits as well. Billy, it's been really uh, great talking to you. Uh, learned a lot and um, really learned a little bit more about, you know, how what Vint is planning in the future. It, it, it's crazy, right? It seems like um, so much has changed maybe for you in the, in the last, uh, I know the first offering was in June uh, and now we got here about, you know, four or five months later. How has it changed in the last five months? And is there anything, you know, that we haven't talked about, about Vint's journey, your personal journey through Vint? and what the company what you guys see coming up yeah no it's it's been a fun ride so far um from qualification in late april uh, my first collection actually went out in um in may so that was that was exciting and then yeah since then uh we've raised a round of funding uh that we're announcing next week 
Uh, our team has grown to it'll be seven soon. It's six right now. And yeah, we, we've we've had multiple producer meetings. Right? We've grown our merchant network. It, it, it's been really exciting to uh, basically just, you know, initially have met Patrick and, and Nick and hear their their vision and to come on board and to kind of help bring this thing to life. And and now we're we're 10, almost 11 collections sold, closing in on a million dollars of investment on the platform. And we were optimistic, but I don't think anybody would have uh, assumed we could get this far this quickly. So we're excited and we're excited for the next next year as well. Yeah, thank you very much, Billy. And you know what? I want to add one more thing because you guys do such a great job of, of educating you know, and, and informing uh, your investors about what it is that they're investing in and why, why it's valuable, you know, and, and I know you did that in this podcast as well. You know, that's the thing that I really enjoy about your platform, uh, the amount of energy and effort that you guys put into your write-ups, you know, even your, your, your uh, YouTube videos. And I know, I know you guys are through different chats and, and you guys are, are so open as well to, um, you know, to customers, right. That want to talk to you. So that's something that I just wanted to mention is, is sometimes, you know, investors kind of jump in blindly and they're not really sure what they're kind of investing in. You guys put the information out there and you say, look, you know, we've, we've sourced this. We, this is why it's, it's, it's valuable. This is why I think, it, you know, we think it's a good investment. And, uh, I just wanted to mention that, you know? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And as, as the team grows, we're only going to have the capacity to produce more content for our investors, both on upcoming collections, as well as, you know, current, uh, happenings for the wines that are of past investments. So we're, we're really excited. It's, it's something that we pride ourselves on. Um, especially me, I'm, you know, a wine nerd at heart. So I want to be able to teach everyone, um, you know, this time it was a little rambling, but teach everybody what makes a great wine all the way from the vineyard to the winery to the bottle. Basically, you know, I want you to know that more than just, you know, one bottle sold for $500,000 20 years ago, invest in this wine. So hopefully when people uh, come to Vint, they, they learn a lot and they can bring some fun facts to their dinner table as well. Great. Well, listen, rambling with you is great. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, I hope to speak to you guys soon. Yeah. Cheers. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website, alternativeassets.club. See you next time.